Ashish, like I believe generally when it comes to entrepreneurship, folks from top tier B schools have significant advantages. There are so many like connections that you build, which some somehow help you later. So I compare it to the nepotism thing in the film industry, right? Which is very easy to get in. but uh, then it becomes very very difficult to I, i think kind of live up to the image of everybody else so if you look at the nepotism in the film industry most of the star kids fail right so there's probably one sanjay dat one sunny deol uh, against very many failures all across right so it's an easy foot in the door because you know people uh, it's probably the first conversation is relatively easier to get uh but after that it's it's up to you uh, you are as naked in the market as as anyone else welcome to the second episode of create wealth today we have ashish mohapatra founder of off business on the show he and his wife ruchi are known to be india's first husband wife duo to found not one but two unicorns in this episode we talk about his wealth creation journey about how his education led him to where he is today and what off business is likely to become in the next few decades listen in to this exciting episode deserve presents the create wealth podcast with sandeep jethwani featuring ashish mohapatra ashish mohapatra welcome to create wealth this is our second episode of create wealth uh you know and one of the most interesting things about your journey is how you've gone about creating massive wealth there are two unicorns that you've created in and you know people barely even do one in in one lifetime uh and you know when you look at your own background there is like the 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 brands on your linkedin profile or on your cv are just incredible iit bhi hai isb bhi hai there is mckinsey there is itc there is matrix how was this was this journey by design or was it by default okay firstly thank you for having me here my journey was a quintessential you know product of the indian education system so you know you get into the system you are in the rat race uh, you uh, you win some you lose some if you win some you you get a good brand on your list and stuff like that i i hardly planned to you know uh, get into stuff that i ended up doing because i just ended up choosing what i thought was the best at that point in time so i never knew that i will end up in a manufacturing factory after uh, my time at itc uh, i initially thought that i will probably uh, do my masters then i realized that i'm truly desi at heart and stuff like that i never knew that after uh, mba while going to mba i didn't know what consulting was i wanted to do marketing because i was a good sales guy and still stay a very good sales guy at the core but you know things changed and whatever emerged as the best possible option at that time is what i what i chose i mean to be very honest but uh, ashish like i believe generally when it comes to entrepreneurship folks from top tier b schools have significant advantages you know we operate in a certain network our network allows us to raise capital uh, like at least from my personal journey from imb uh, there are so many like connections that you build which some somehow help you later okay and like one is when you recruit folks they look at your cv unko lagta hai ki theek banda hoga second when you fundraise there is already an inherent advantage that you probably know the people you are going to fundraise from eventually right so how how did that help you or did it not like the iit isb journey so i compare it to the nepotism thing in the film industry right which is it's very easy to get in but uh, then it becomes very very difficult to i, I think kind of live up to the image of everybody else who 
created that kind of opportunity for you and is actually at the very least is as uh, uh, as an opportunity is as equal so if you look at the nepotism in the film industry most of the star kids fail right so there's probably one sanjay dat one sunny deol uh, against very many failures all across right so it's an easy foot in the door because you know people uh, it's probably the first conversation is relatively easier to get uh but after that it's it's up to you uh, you are as naked in the market as as anyone else and in the market no pedigree counts uh, no uh, kind of you know financial backing counts what you do how you do how fast you do how high you jump what kind of teams you build is what counts so i think good foot in the door but nothing beyond that but it's an important foot in the door right i mean uh, like half the folks would struggle to get just to the point where they can get their foot in the door right and then there are then there are advantages the other thing is like this whole consulting thing right and i i see a lot of venture capitalists and founders come from mckinsey bcg what is it about the consulting journey that uh, is is a is a determinant for success in the future times yeah i think if you look at a founder there are three or four things which are important for the founder to do well right and i think a couple of them at least are correlated to a initial stint at consulting the three or four things that are important for a founder to do well at the very minimum there are very many things higher than that one is the ability to think big right mm-hmm. um and the second is to ability to build high impact teams who are kind of you know gelling well with each other and are motivated around the same goal as you are right so i think these two goals in particular are the ones which are very directly correlated to consulting in consulting you know people think of very big things i mean one of the words that i picked up at mckinsey in my early days of my career was uh, was this word called impact and almost everybody thought about impact at there i mean on the lighter side i think the first partner that i uh, that i worked with when i asked him you know what is it that you want to do in life he said i want to change india's gdp by 2% that's the wow. <laughs> that's big thinking <laughs> that's big thinking right gdp it's not like he wants to you know change the course of a company or build certain wealth for each other we're just changing the gdp so what is impact the ability to think big and there everybody literally everybody right down to the floor actually thinks big and the second thing is also um, consulting is a very contact sport right you have to build followership uh, or else people don't work with you because of crazy hours right mm-hmm. uh, today crazy hours is a big joke in the uh, in the startup world but bit. yes so uh, so there are crazy hours uh, stuff at times is 99% or maybe even more perspiration and stuff like that it's not stuff that you would regularly enjoy so people have to really gel well with each other and kind of work well as a team that consulting inherently forces you. uh because of its inherent model so i think these two i picked up other than that there are you know intangible skills like how to handle yourself in big board rooms um how to really think about uh the core of the problem solving issue and stuff like that but i would say the first two are the ones which almost every consultant has today mm-hmm. but uh tell me you know when it comes to consulting ashish one common thing is that our consultants invested enough right because at the end of the day they're not you have to move from one event or one situation to another uh context switching is required and you have to move away from the advice that you gave right and only watch it is that something that uh you know colors your uh, entrepreneurial journey later on it does so the reason why a lot of consultants don't end up becoming great entrepreneurs is because of what you just said is that they are not great operators at heart and somehow they don't believe that they can really bend the curve by themselves so they kind of delegate well but they don't do it themselves so i think so that's one vein of consulting there are few others as well 
but uh, rightfully pointed out i think that's the primary reason why consultants in general tend to be very poor operators they are very good general managers if you see uh, consulting or investment banking in general like goldman sachs would be another example they are typically considered the ceo factories of the world but the great entrepreneurs are not from these two institutions it's changing in india though i think india is a slightly different dna compared to global institutions meaning that uh, india the cream of uh, talent actually goes to consulting in some form or the other at least the cream of the mba talent goes to consulting and hence it's more of a confounding variable that is playing in the background which is that you know, the best people are any uh, anyways in it and hence they would likely end up doing well at entrepreneurship but globally what you are saying is absolutely right yeah because uh, you know that's the criticism that a lot of consultants face uh, and for no fault of theirs because they are being hired for a job for a limited period of time uh, and then when we move to your next step which is the matrix uh, journey right that's another uh, very different uh, position that you're in you're somewhat invested uh, but even if you want to participate you can't because you are on the sidelines right as a, as a vc uh, and i've heard you talk about uh you know vcs who are operators who have been operators versus vcs who have not been why did you get into uh matrix and what was the thought process behind that or again was it just like the flow of the tide with sort of it was it was but there was a little bit more of thought into it because i had a few other opportunities as well if you remember the my you know my first partner he he wanted to change the gdp by 1% i said okay let me at least try to change it by one bit if not anything else so what happened then is that okay let me i thought let me have real impact and the classic uh, joke in mckinsey was that you know um, you were just looking at the consultant's watch or rather your client's watch and telling him the time right mm. so you are not invested at all you were looking at his watch and telling him the time so i thought okay let me at least bridge it one step closer by saying okay let me buy him a watch <laughs> at least i can <laughs> look into my watch and tell him his time right so okay. i think it was one step closer to you know uh, creating real impact uh, mckinsey or consulting was probably two steps away um, at least here you can put your money where your mouth is um, so it was relatively more impactful but not really fully there uh, so i had kind of zeroed down on a career saying that i would rather get into operations general management or uh, i didn't know pvc per se mm-hmm. um, i think i was interviewed into pvc because i was a good operator or i was spoken of as a good operator it just happened so that you know the the vc world that i entered in did not have too many operating positions as uh, as of then and hence i ended up being a vc uh, it was also one of the better careers to have i think uh, back then i'm talking about 2010 or so mm-hmm. um, you know literally exit routes out of consulting if you're not satisfied enough the corporate world wasn't really that open back then it was really open at a very junior position or mm. it was open at a very senior position i think mid level positions were not really open for consultants mm-hmm. so you largely had to go to a investment banking or a pvc to kind of uh, you know take a step jump from there so there were limited options back then as well mm. but uh, how was how was that that journey at matrix like you how what are the entrepreneurs that you were involved with what are the uh, what were the experiences learning from some of them right so i think i learned more don'ts from them than do's to be very honest uh, because i kind of you know because of my background both in consulting and before that i ended up becoming a consultant into healthcare services uh, now in healthcare services uh, the kind of people we invested in were extremely commercial and were very clinical in nature meaning that they had great clinical capabilities they were great doctors they could cure incurable diseases 
uh, they could sell their products very well and stuff like that. And at the same time, they were very commercial, right? So I think yeah. the first, I, I, I learned a series of don'ts. So I'll tell you, tell you my top three don'ts. The yeah. first thing I learned from them was to, uh, was that being commercial is not just being a good negotiator. It is also being, building a vision for the future. If you, do, if you build something uh, which is small and very profitable, you will end up becoming a panwala, uh, right? The panwala actually, uh, you know, the panwala who sells you those beetle nuts is actually the most profitable business on earth. Uh, but he just can't scale it up, right? There are no chains of panwalas per se. So uh, one thing that I learned, and this is by, uh, by virtue of getting it wrong myself, is to, uh, you know, think big and at the same time negotiate. Uh, the second thing that I learned from them is to never overinvest. I saw a lot of uh, healthcare entrepreneurs at that time Mm. over investing in capex thinking that it will give them returns on margin mm. uh, and it ne necessarily didn't play out that way because of this classic saying that you know drains were never designed for downpours drains were designed for the fact that they would take the running water away so if you decide if you make too big a drain then there's probably not going to be space enough for a road i think that's one big thing that has plagued the healthcare industry whenever they've got you know, a uh, lot of capital equity or debt, they've gone in and invested into uh, very high capex that necessarily has not uh, generated in return. Some people have kind of, you know, broken this curve and stuff like that. I think the third thing that I realized is uh, um, the ability to, you know, deflate your ego to build teams. Um, so yeah. I have been with entrepreneurs who are, I mean, doctors particularly have extremely high egos and that becomes an impediment in them building both clinical and non-clinical teams, meaning managerial teams as well as doctors. And I saw it really live uh, when I, um, and uh, I saw uh, what it could do to your, uh, you know, culture in general, but also team building uh, uh, in particular. And uh, those are the things I learned were very important to building businesses. I saw that in the absence of those, they were getting, you know, in the way of uh, building profits mm. uh, or scale. And uh, yes, I kind of used those to uh, my own advantage when I started off. The team one, I, I, it really resonates with me because, you know, I feel like st smarter teams, teams which are smarter than the founder, give you a lot of leverage. It just frees up a lot of your time and... Uh, you know, I, I was this in a recently a meeting with my marketing and my product team and within like meeting was scheduled for one hour, but 15 minute ke baad, it was like, yeah, I am not required in this meeting. You guys have this covered. It seems like, so I think, and, and it just frees up so much of the founder's time to be able to do more productive uh, stuff. And I think that's incredible, but talk to me about actually this whole thing about, uh, size versus profitability 2021 2022 has been this debate essentially right 2021 was about grow fast become really big uh, overnight and then profitability will come at a later point of time now questions are being asked about how is the path to profitability and maybe size question has become a secondary question suddenly right so it's like uh, the uh, ebbs and flows of uh, of markets but what what would be your advice to somebody who's thinking of starting up how should they think about the size versus profitability question early on so in this i have always been an extremist uh, almost a fundamentalist that uh, the fundamental of business is about making money uh, the whole currency of business is about uh, about handling money and handling it the right way so i am always a profitability first person uh, irrespective of the kind of business that you are in you, obviously, there is there are some businesses which have kind of some kind of a gestation. But when I see a year of gestation, my I mean I think that I'm going to 
be an insomniac for a year. So I'm always profitability first. Um, uh, and I believe that uh, anybody who does not think the same way has a, a DNA that is irreversible. Right. So um, my thoughts would sound extremely judgmental because uh, because of the background that I come from, uh, which was uh, in trading, in aggregation and stuff like that. So I think that um, uh, without that, the business doesn't exist. Um, you know, uh, the reality is that the world is thinking about it right now because uh, uh, it was it wasn't the fad about, a, a, you know, two, two, three years back. But I guess uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't have a trade off to be made. Uh, in my own words, I think that uh, profitability comes first. In fact, to give you an anecdote, I actually, during the first three years of my journey at our business, had uh, um, recoined the designation of mine uh, from CEO to CPO, P not for product, but P for profit. So that you know, everybody <laughs> knew that that was the center of what we were aiming for. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's who I am. But uh, I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, and I think, look, long-term fundamentals of businesses don't change. Sometimes free, easy cash makes uh, makes life different. But at the end of the day, you know, the concept of a dhanda entrepreneur is uh, was was slightly derogatory maybe a, a few years uh, for the last few years, but I think it, it seems to be uh, coming back. Ashish, talk to me about your own fundraising journey because raising money at off business, which is from the outside in a non-sexy space, it's B2B, that in itself is something that uh, is not hot in India. Generally, VCs in India have funded typically consumer uh, businesses. Uh, what was it that allowed you to, uh, or helped you raise capital? Was it your own sales abilities or was it your connections or what was it that was working for you? I think fundraising fundamentally, uh, if you look at, India per se, I think is much more founder first. So um, in India, people typically believe that the founder comes uh, above the market. So as a founding team, uh, not just founders, but also the senior management team, we embodied certain, uh, I would say, um, uh, capabilities or maybe certain traits, which, uh, which helped us. One, we were very perseverant. Two, extremely sales oriented. Three, extremely dhanda oriented. Fourth, um, very grounded and hands-on. Like I just ran in from a sales meeting to meet you guys uh, uh, on Zoom. So, so I think a combination of that, but, uh, but uh, people first. The second thing is our um, ability to have demonstrated. In the beginning, it was more people, right? So it, it became tougher in the first couple of years after the funding round, which was focused on people actually went away. Mm -hmm. uh, it was about the character of the business. Mm -hmm. I think the first two years when we were in business, the consumer internet was, like you said, was completely uh, you know, what people were infatuated or in love with, or mm -hmm. whatever term you use. But reality is uh, that the nature of our business looked very different, mm -hmm. meaning that our margins were relatively lower compared to what consumer internets would do at scale. Mm -hmm. uh, but our returns on capital were, were much bigger because the investment or capital efficiency for, our, for businesses like ours was, was very, very different. So to find out people who uh, were interested in that was very rare mm. because mostly people wanted to, in, uh, you know, invest into loss making businesses who actually had a hockey stick kind of a journey to what, you know, Amazon or Alibaba initially had, right? Uh, the third uh, thing about us is, uh, is uh, this entire thing, as you rightly spoken about, you know, people don't think intuitively about, about our kind of businesses. What we sell is steel, what we sell is wood, copper, zinc petrochemicals. People don't think about it on their daily basis. So they don't have a very intuitive sense about these products in general. So these were the obstacles, you know, the, these last two were the obstacles, but I think the first one quite 
trumped the the second and the third. Um, and to be very honest with you, uh, compared to all the B two B businesses that existed at that point in time, our ability to execute, especially in the beginning of our journey, was was far higher and it was visible in numbers. Hmm. I'm a very numbers oriented guy, so I believe that if you have the numbers, everything else is like you know will get taken care of. It's like you're studying in school and uh, you're first in class, so uh, your parents will kind of forgive everything else that you have. That's what you. That, that's what happened for us. But Ashish, like if you think about the conventional fundraising journey, right? Shuru me, it's about the founder. Then it becomes more about the execution, and finally, it's fully about the business, right? Uh, and obviously, every company goes through uh, phases. Typically, the you know as the company matures or becomes like in the second or third round of funding, it becomes a lot more about the execution. Is it hard? Was it harder at that point of time? Because when the founder narrative uh, weans off, and it's firmly about. execution and obviously execution is not linear right it takes time to build you're building the team team is learning all of that is happening simultaneously was it like at any point that was the challenges in fundraising also oh our fundraising was extremely challenging so uh, if you leave the first round where i think uh, we landed money pretty easily given the you know founding team's background mm-hmm. um, the next two funding rounds have been it's a it's a storied case of failure i think two rounds put together we we had more than 70 plus rejections uh, largely because of the facts that i just told you no, nobody wanted to do b2b um, there was no comparable of our business uh, globally um, people did not believe that it will uh, the capital efficient nature of the business that uh, existed at that point in time is going to continue into the future and stuff like that so it changed but reality is that see you need one investor right i mean to be very honest with you i think in our second third and fourth round we've had six rounds uh, seven rounds so far in the company second yeah. third and fourth round only one person like that so that was enough i mean at the end of the day if you had one one good deal uh, you can you, you can you could always negotiate your way through uh, i hope people who gave us that term sheet were always under the impression that you know we were liked by all because they don't want to be in a you know what is it called uh, the buyers frenzy or what is called right yeah. so um but we always found one i think there was always one person who was there who kind of believed in our story kind of believed the fact that these numbers are going to continue uh, that the scope the scope of this business is going to be wide and stuff like that so um yeah that, that that is the case i think we kept going at it and we we kept talking about the same things uh, it uh, it relatively got easier as the rounds progressed because whatever numbers we kind of gave them mm. um we kept on beating them quarter on quarter mm. um the attrition in the top team was very low mm. um i think margins continued to expand over a period of time there was not a single quarter where the margins actually came down in spite of you know a lot of stuff going around in the world first mm. it was demonetization then it was gst then there was credit squeezing yeah. then there was this ilfs debacle then there was a dhfl debacle uh, then there was corona and covid and uh, but the business kept marching on and i think uh, uh, it got easier with time yeah and uh... Ashish, how much was tech a part of it? Your own journey from IIT, I think. Uh, uh, how how did did like your own background play an important part in how you built out the tech, or were you in that CEO position where you had strong folks? I know Bhuvan uh, and folks like him who were building it out. So how how was your own engineering background contributing to the fact that you were building a tech supported business? See, I can proudly tell you that my engineering background, particularly the academics that I had around, though I did fairly well in my academics at that point in time, never really contributed to any kind of what I do today, except the few people I learned there and the network that I built there. 
See, huh? our model in terms of senior team is very, very simple. We kind of, you know, we operate in extreme silos. Uh, we have very common shared goals mm -hmm. and we kind of report to them across silos once every month or quarter, whatever the review frequencies. Hmm. So I lead business. My job is to actually lead sales because I'm a salesman at heart. Hmm. Um, Bhuvan leads tech, which includes both engineering and products. Um, he has a very good intuitive understanding of our business. Uh, and I have a very good intuitive understanding of what technology he's building. But we never kind of, you know, um, uh, kind of uh, got into each other's paths. Uh, he was building what we wanted. Uh, we were consuming what he was building. And it was kind of a very symbiotic journey. I think that's very important to kind of, you know, um, kind of very good people to coexist, which is that you have certain shared values and certain shared goals, but be very, very um, uh, siloed or extremely independent in how you operate. So little, very little of my inputs have gone into technology. Uh, but what we built so far is almost uh, uh, is almost uh, uh, treated as uh, at par with almost the, all the excellent products that have been, been built in B2B because we built what the customers wanted. We built where there were clear need gaps and the business was a function of that technology. Yeah, interesting. And I, you know, one of the things which uh, struck out to me is I was recently at this fintech event. I think you were invited. You couldn't make it. Uh, there were some very enthusiastic folks from your company there, right? And uh, these are folks, and I, I think I texted you after that. Uh, these are folks who reached out to me and were talking to me about Deserve and trying to understand what Deserve does, why it does things in a certain way. And then when I was talking to them about their backgrounds, I think I, I realized that they are very different from your own background, right? Uh, uh, obviously, they are great hustlers, etc. But they, are pro they were probably from tier two towns. They were not from the top tier one B schools or uh, or engineering colleges. What's been off business's story there? Yeah, so um, I mean, I'm 41 and I'm the probably the third or the fourth oldest uh, person in the company. So our company is very young. Our median age is likely in the 23, 24 kind of domain. So it's probably a two year grad from school. So the, the places that I really liked as institutions where I actually spent a lot of time uh, professionally, where ones that were built through this entire concept of saying that we will build a management training or a good freshman program, whether it was ITC, whether it was McKinsey, uh, even Matrix in its earlier days, used to believe a lot in the fact that they will get people who are untrained, but who had great intrinsics and they will kind of, you know, model them towards being a great uh, institutional top bearer. So uh, that was one thing that I felt in real love with because I had seen the opposite of it at work uh, mm -hmm. during my consulting and during my investing days. And I had seen that there the organizational character used to literally be something very difficult to change. It was very difficult to mold people, right? Mm -hmm. It was very easy to make people learn than unlearn. And with that concept is what we started at our business, wherein we said, okay, the founding team is, is probably on the wrong or the right side of 30, we were all 30 plus. Uh, but beyond that, we said we will only uh, take people who are zero to two years of experience and heavily towards freshmen. So I think more than 90% of our company is actually built with that uh, program. It's called the management training program, wherein uh, we take people across you know variety of institutes. We go to the same institutes over and over again. And we believe that people with the right set of intrinsics, people with hunger, hustle, people who uh, can dream big, are ready to give everything, are ready to learn, and uh, you know are from tier two institutions and hence loyalty comes very inherent to them because they're not thinking about the next jump and their next, you know, how their batch is doing and stuff like that is what we really relied on. And that's paid out for us in some ways, at least, you know, the same guys are there and uh, uh, we like hanging out with them. Uh, I know we've missed out a lot of 
cross uh, uh, company or cross institutional learning that we could have, but it's a small price to pay to given where where uh, we are today. But uh, Ashish, like, is it isn't the learning phase a little longer for an early stage? Not long, not long. For that, you have to be really hands on. So, to be honest with you, I think the first three or four years, uh, Sandeep was very very tough mm -hmm. because essentially what it did was that it put a lot of pressure in the first fifty who came in because we were a team of about thirty to forty people who kind of started and mm -hmm. we were all you know experienced guys. Mm -hmm. so it put a lot of pressure on them to actually deliver. And in fact, during that time. Uh, all the members of our board, as well as you know, people who were uh, you know uh, well wishers of ours, they used to always come and say, "Hey, you know what? You're getting it wrong. Why don't you take people who can catch the ground running?" But we just believed in it we, because I think all of us kind of had come from some institution or the other which had that philosophy, and they had seen it out play very beautifully, and uh, we just stuck on. It was very difficult in the beginning, uh, and the lure to actually change it, and we fell to that lure a few times. We did hire two seniors; they didn't work out. Mm. Um, uh, and it was primarily because I mean they kept saying that it was very difficult to get the old boys network as they say. Uh, so there could have been reasons uh, for us to uh, have done otherwise, uh, but we just stuck to it. I think the fact is not. I mean, uh, it's not prescriptive that this is the only way. Yeah. But uh, uh, I think if you choose this way, and you are disciplined about uh, how you execute along on this way, uh, it can really pay dividends. Is my feeling. So, I, I, is it a function of the fact that you had a top tier which was super experienced and then there was these guys who are young and willing to be mentored by this top tier of, uh, of experienced professionals, basically? Yes, yes. We, in fact, we used to sell the fact that you will be apprenticed with people who you will likely be close to in all your corporate jobs way a lot uh, later in your careers. That used to be a big selling point on both campuses as well as initial freshman interviews that we used to do at our business. So yes, that, that is something that we always uh, banked on. The second thing that we banked on uh, is the fact that, you know, we sold the dream that we will never hire your boss, right? So um, people um, uh, from your domain itself who are the best performers are the ones who are going to lead teams, mm -hmm. maybe likely lead you in the near future. Mm -hmm. um, people, um, we also sold the dream that, uh, at the end of the day, we will execute to a very simple four-step vision. The first vision is, uh, so the, the vision is that first year you will be a, a foot soldier or an executive doing mm -hmm. whatever function you are, you've been assigned to. Mm -hmm. The second is when you will be a team lead, the mm -hmm. second year. Mm -hmm. And in the third year, you will be leading some kind of function or geography. The fourth year, you will be leading a business unit. And the fifth year, you'll be jobless, which means you'll start something new at offices. So what it did is that because we executed around this particular vision with fierce execution, I think every single year uh, we pushed ourselves into saying, okay, these are many number of people we've hired. Now, what do we do with them? How do they go into managing at least one new team member if they're average uh, mm -hmm. is what uh, uh, really um, uh, people looked forward to. I think just the fierce execution around it and the fact that, you know, very many people like, for example, this was today our sixth year our third batch uh, had close to 43 people and uh, there were 35 left with us and almost everybody got jobless and each of those 35 people actually got new things to do at our business is something uh, we feel very proud about, right? And uh, that creates a lot of management bandwidth. No, it's incredible because in a, in a time of high attrition, I think the strategy gives a lot of clarity to the, to the person working in the team because they feel uh, that they are growing consistently and are rewarded for uh, for what for staying around at as long as it's merit meritocratic enough of course that that makes sense 
uh, Ashish, so you're already at a stage where there are two unicorns that you uh, have built at off business. Uh, and I'm sure somewhere two, three years or maybe earlier down the line, there is an IPO. But what's really the big vision for off business? Like if you were to look at, say, 10, 15 years out, what is it that you tell your team or sell to the team that this is what this company is going to become? To be honest with you, I am a hardwired business kind of guy. I don't think that uh, long term. I believe that your tomorrow should be better than your uh, today. And your day after should be better than your tomorrow. And that's how you build great businesses. I think for businesses, uh, for me, business is about continuous improvement and uh, thinking about it on the fly and continuously changing and iterating so that you can do it, uh, do it better. Having said that, I have always dreamt of this fact. I don't really share it because it sounds outlandish. I have dreamt of this fact that, you know, that whenever there are raw materials to be spoken about, then uh, the first name that should come to your mind is, uh, is of business. I think in certain raw materials, in certain geographies, we've kind of, you know, we've kind of achieved that. Yeah. Uh, but it will be great to see it pan India. But I don't think that way. I mean, I don't execute that way. I don't speak that way. What I keep telling people is that think of it week on week. Think of it month on month for sure. Never measure yourself quarter on quarter. Never measure yourself year on year because that way you are likely uh, reducing the ability to compound. So um, for why, why me, do you say that? I explain that. So, for example, if you are uh, if you're measuring yourself week on week, mm. um, in a year you will compound fifty-two times. Yeah. Right. Versus, if you're measuring yourself quarter on quarter, you will uh, compound yourself only four times. Obviously, the compounding rate in the quarter on quarter growth will be higher. But when you're compounding something fifty-two times, even if you're growing by one percent every week on week, that, that's a very one point zero one to the power fifty-two, right? So yeah. reduce the time in which you're measuring yourself, both professionally, if you want to do it personally, even better. Um, and uh, that is my philosophy that, you know, you take a number, you take a business, you take a product, you take a geography, find out what metric you want to change and just, just put a very limited time frame for yourself to measure uh, yourself on that metric. And then, you know, over a short period of time, you then are literally chasing excellence in some way. Uh, Ashish, you are creating wealth in many ways. Uh, I think you're creating wealth at the at the very beginning for the 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 people that you serve, right? I I, I hear it from a lot of uh, SMEs who dealt with you, uh, and they talk uh, very highly about off business. You're creating wealth for um, for your employees, for and hopefully your VCs also, and along the way somewhere for yourself as well. What does wealth mean to Ashish Mohapatra. Uh, so for me, wealth is a way of keeping score. Uh, you know, beyond a point, uh, wealth does not have any material benefits to, uh, to what we do as a living uh, or how much we need. I don't think we are going to hoard it forever. I don't think uh, we are going to be very philanthropic about it. But having earned it and earned it for a lot of people, is a great way of keeping score. Uh, um, it's like, you know, when, uh, like you talked about the brands on your CV, uh, uh, if you want to have, if you've created a lot of wealth for both yourself and for others, it means that uh, you've scored well in life. Yeah, makes sense. What is the best investment that you've ever made, Ashish? My um, best investment is, uh, is, uh, in, uh, is investing in me. I mm. think um, I am uh, supremely confident of the fact that I, I will generate the best returns compared to what uh, compared to what um, I would do elsewhere. So I tend to kind of put money in things that uh, I know 
uh, I can do, I can influence and stuff like that. And uh, I've always believed that uh, that's, um, that's the best way to earn money. That's an interesting uh, way of thinking about it. And what was the biggest money mistake that you made, Ashish? I think initially in my uh, earning years, I believed a lot in the real estate boom. And I think I locked a lot of capital out there. Mm. Uh, when this is, you know, early, uh, early part of the century when India was going through that big kind of shining India campaign where uh, Vajpayee was at the helm, a lot of infrastructure was getting built, a mm. lot of tier, I'm a tier two boy myself, tier two prices just scaled through the roof, right? Um, and uh, I made a lot of money as well uh, during that entire boom, but what I didn't factor in for is liquidity mm-hmm. and security. Uh, I think... Uh, the amount of real estate I lost because of these two things or the amount of money I, lo- I lost is something that I wouldn't, uh, because you don't think about that when you're young, right? Yeah. You see prices are soaring and stuff like that. And there's like a physical asset. I mean, if you're investing money in stock, you don't see the stock, right? But if you invest money in land, you can go and walk on the land. Yeah. Uh, you know, the uh, I think that's something that I generally factor into my decisions today, uh, which is liquidity and security. Um, rather than just the reward part of it. And hence, real estate early in my career would be my biggest mistake. Interesting. And what is the what is the one advice that you would give to yourself if you were younger? What would you do differently when it comes to your money if, when you were younger? Would you start saving earlier? Would you, would you have done anything different than what you did? I would, uh, I would be more conservative in the beginning. I think I kind of waited a lot towards... Uh, uh, reward in my beginning uh, investing days. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of stocks. I did a lot of real estate as you just heard. I was a good stock picker because mm-hmm. I uh, I kind of, uh, you know, um, was a value investor of some kind uh, and understood finances pretty intuitively having done business early in life. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I, I did not understand the real concept of what is risk and yeah. hence kind of disregarded fixed income instruments, you know, whether they were debt funds or whether they were uh, fixed deposits or even mutual funds at that point in time were very risk focused, right? So I think I disregarded risk a lot. My portfolio was always weighted towards more reward mm-hmm. and uh, covering for risk. And I would change that. Uh, today, when I think of it, I think I have a fair balance, especially because I handle a lot more money at scale, right? So hence, um, um, I would probably try to uh, imbibe some of those things early in my life if I had a second chance. That's amazing, Ashish. I think there are great insights for us about education, about how to build businesses, about how to start up and finally how to manage money. This has been an incredible podcast. Uh, Hopefully, uh, a lot of us will learn a lot from this one. Thank you for doing this, Ashish. Thank you so much for having me. Hit the subscribe button and stay tuned for our next episode.